Hey everybody, welcome to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. Uh, this week's a really special one for me. We're talking to, uh, if you were part of the Cross of Life stream of our congregation, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 years, more than 10 years ago, uh, 15 to 25 years ago, you would have known a teenager growing up in our congregation uh, named Sarah Matchlin. And in the years since then, uh, Sarah's gotten married and uh, would now be Sarah Zanich, um, married, two kids. And the reason we're talking to her today is she's involved in just really important work in uh, an organization called the International Rescue Committee, where she's the deputy director of programs. And this is an organization that works uh, in, through, and among um, immigrants and immigration and uh, since that's a topic that uh, that uh, we're really acquainted with as a congregation because of our involvement in El Salvador, and it's certainly something that gets a lot of coverage uh, every day in the news, uh, pro-con, otherwise in between, believable, not believable. Uh, I, I just think it's always really important to talk to people who are in the middle of it and therefore I think have, you know, both expertise and heart. Uh, for the people that are a part of that. So that's Sarah through and through. Uh, that's who she's always been. And uh, the other thing I always remember about Sarah is she went on a lot of our trips uh, when she was growing up here and um, also was the original, I think the original singer of the call and response Lord's Prayer. Isn't that, is that correct, Sarah? It, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Me and Mark Krause. Yeah, you brought that back from camp. So anyhow, welcome, Sarah. And um why don't we start with a few basics? You know, you you grew up at Cross of Life. Um, I don't know, what about faith did or didn't connect with you back then? And how has that, in a sense, shaped the current you a little bit? Yeah. You know, I did grow up at Cross of Life. And I don't really remember when we joined. I wasn't baptized at Cross of Life. But I do remember being a little kid getting sung up for children's sermons by Pastor Sue. Um, and honestly, you know, when I think about it, to say that I grew up at Cross of Life somehow feels a little bit like an understatement. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, both big and small, Cross of Life and my faith journey really shaped who I am and what I do. Um, I think some of my earliest faith memories are being a little kid and the biggest and most pressing question about my faith at the time was how do the dinosaurs fit into the seven days of creation? And, to, you know, elementary school age me, this was like a big issue and it was like oh. pivotal for me. And I remember coming up to either you or Joanne Tom and asking about it. And, and this was like a crisis of faith for me. And I don't remember anymore exactly what you guys said, but I remember it being enough to keep my mind open to the faith and to learning more and figuring out kind of and and validating what we were talking about in church every week. Um, as, as I got older and in confirmation, I remember feeling like the information we learned in confirmation just clicked in me and it clicked in a way that subjects in school never really did. Um, it felt like because of that connection, it really felt like something that I should lean into. And so I did. Um, I created study guides for confirmation and had binders and would like study them at my lunch at school. Wow, Sarah. It's not like nerdy. Pastor Sherry. <laughs> I was a little nerdy. But the cool thing was that like, because I was bringing this piece of my confirmation to school, 
I started talking to, to some of my friends at school who were different faiths or from different denominations. I had some Roman Catholic friends that were very devout. I had some Mormon friends. Um, and we would talk about the tenets of our faith and, and what underlined our value systems. And right, like this is in middle school. We're like seventh and eighth graders sitting at lunch talking about our faith. Um, and, and we found points of uh, shared values, but we also found points of respectful disagreement. Um, and, and it was really those initial seeds of conversation about what matters and, and what do we believe and why do we believe it? Um, meanwhile at church, you know, I'd say the community of faith is what really connected me and drew me in. Um, whether it was vacation Bible school as a kid or East coast road trips or singing in choir in church or becoming worship assistant, there was something at church where I felt a sense of being respected by the adults, despite being in high school. Um, and, and with every passing year, I, I connected more and more with the community in any way that I could. So I was on church council, I was on synod council. You and Pastor Maria had recommended that I attend a like several week long leadership yeah. thing in Chicago, where we spent time in Chicago um, at the seminary and then spent a week in Mexico City. I volunteered with church to serve in places outside of my backyard. And I think that was really what was pivotal for me and what connected the most with me was, was getting, was, was how church got me access to places outside of mm -hmm. what I knew and outside of kind of the bubble that I was in otherwise. Serving meals downtown, um, service projects across the city, trips to El Salvador, all of these different things opened my eyes to things that were bigger than myself. Um, and, but also the pain and hurt that exists in the world. Um, and, and the compassion and the threads of human humanity that really underline and bind us all to one another. And I think that was really what was kind of going through me as a kid. Um, and as I was trying to figure out kind of where my faith fit into all of it, it was, faith was central to it. And, and regardless of if I shared the same faith or exact same values or beliefs as someone next to me, there was this hope and faith and compassion that tied us all together. Wow. Um, uh, just a small aside, I, I laughed when you mentioned the part about the dinosaurs, because we, we literally just talked about that this week in confirmation. So the conversation <laughs> goes on. I think the other thing that is a little striking is, you know, you're feeling that you were respected by the adults, um, you know, because you you were and and are. I mean, um, I sometimes don't know the impact that our teenagers, for example, have on our ministries. You, for example, uh, uh, were one of the early El Salvador travelers and went several times. And I don't think we'd have the the ministries and partnerships that we have with our partners in El Salvador, if people like you hadn't been really committed to it in, in the early go. And that that's part of what, you know, sustained it and then kind of established it. Um, so anyhow, thank you for being a part of that. Uh, I, you weren't imagining it, it, you know, it was very real and, and, um, it, you know, I think, everybody's circles just eyes are getting bigger and ours were as was as were yours so uh that's kind of a baseline of beginning um 
Tell us about how maybe marriage, moving around the country, uh, having kids, how did that shape the current you? And, and tell us a little bit about how you, well, let's do that. And then we'll get into specifically how you got into the work you do. But let's let's do uh-huh. a little bit more on other things that shaped you. Yeah. So truth be told, I did not want to go away to college. I wanted to go to UW-Milwaukee. I wanted to stay in a place where I knew people. I knew my surroundings. And honestly, my mom really pushed me to get out and see more beyond kind of my backyard, beyond beyond the metro area. Um, and at the same time, Bishop Paul Stamadiers had recommended Wartburg College to me. Um, he knew that I had gone on the trips to El Salvador and, and that they meant so much to me. And he knew that Wartburg had some really amazing study abroad programs, including one that went to Tanzania. Um, So at college, I majored in religion and international relations. And then I spent the first semester of my junior year uh, living in Tanzania. I studied Swahili. I visited different villages every day and really just lived in the community. Um, It was really an immersion into the culture of another place. Um, And I, throughout that experience, similar to, trips to El Salvador, I remember being struck by kind of the commonalities of the human spirit, human experience. You know, I was in a completely different place. They spoke a different language. They ate differently than I did. They lived in houses that looked differently than mine. Um, But there were so many common experiences. Um, And I remember coming back from Tanzania and, and really struggling to get back into kind of the swing of what I had as my life plan. Um, up until that point, I was going to graduate college. I was going to go to seminary. I was going to become a pastor. And it was going to be like this. It was all set. Um, and I, I, was, I was starting to struggle with it a little bit. But I, I fought it. And I was like, this is my plan. Everything's laid out in front of me. Why should I question this? Everything's, the path is set. Um, and so I, I, I forged ahead. I went through with the discernment process with the ELCA. I got accepted to Wartburg Seminary. I had a full tuition scholarship. I had an apartment picked out in Dubuque. I even had a dog picked out that I was going to um, adopt from a local shelter. Wow. Um, I was all ready. And it wasn't until, you know, a, about a year later, a few weeks before graduation, um, that this unsettling feeling in my gut got so strong for, for a number of different reasons, but I knew I couldn't avoid it anymore. Um, I decided to put seminary enrollment on hold. I took a year off of college to figure out what my next steps would be and what felt right. Um, and I, I worked a lot of jobs. I were, I was a waitress. I worked at a call center. I, I did anything I needed to do, you know, worked three jobs to, to pay my rent and spend some time figuring out what felt right. Um, And it was then that I met a guy who um, I started dating and I I met some members of the community that he was from. He um, had come from Bosnia and Herzegovina as a refugee when he was a kid. Um, And he had come to Iowa and they started talking about, you know, how they came to the U.S. and, and, really it all started with curiosity and that same kind of curiosity that led me to have conversations with my peers in middle school about our faith was where did you come from and how did you come to the U.S.? Um, And that really kind of opened my eyes to the diversity of people that are in this country. 
um, and, and really triggered something in me that, hey, I can have these really cool international experiences in the United States. Um, at one point in my life, I thought like, oh, I'm going to live abroad and I'm going to have like, go live in another country somewhere. And what I realized when I was studying abroad in Tanzania was I am much more of a homebody than I ever thought I was. Um, I like traveling, but I also like being able to come home and like call my family on a reliable phone line. Um, and so all of these things kind of came together for me to realize that working with international populations, working with the diversity of the communities around us were really important to me. Um, and that's what helped lead me to my master's degree, um, which is international or intercultural service leadership and management, um, hmm. focused on international issues, focused on uh, working with immigrant communities, and then found myself into working with refugees and immigrants. Which you continue to do. Uh, tell us a little bit about the specifics of your job right now, and then maybe we'll work backwards to some of the other things that you've uh, been involved with. <clears throat> yeah. So right now I work for, like you said, International Rescue Committee. We are an international organization that works in a lot of conflict zones around the world and areas where there's natural disaster, providing support to individuals and communities. Um, and then we also work in the United States. Uh, we work with newcomers. We work with refugees who've been forced to flee their homes because of violence and persecution and helping them set up new lives and set up their lives and find solid footing when they get to the U.S. Um, and we work with other types of immigrants as well who are coming, people seeking asylum or people um, who've received humanitarian parole, like the Afghans that came um, in large numbers over the past few years. Um, we work with communities that are vulnerable and, and just try to provide support and stability and walk alongside people. Um, I think that's one of the things that strikes me most about this work is it's not, it's not necessarily that I'm giving to people or I'm helping people. Certainly it's a helping type of profession, but um, I think the thing that strikes me most is that every day I learn more than I possibly give back to people. Um, I learn about communities, I learn about values, I learn about diversity of viewpoints. Um, and so we provide a lot of different types of services through my office, um, case management, employment supports. Um, a lot of offices offer immigration legal supports um, and work with a lot of different types of communities as well. And you're doing this all in Iowa. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there were immigrants in all 50 states, huh? Who knew? Uh, oh, yeah. We're, they're everywhere. So uh, perhaps the the common story is people coming to the United States because of uh, duress, um, hardship, loss in their original environment, uh, their home environment. Um, where you are, are, are people coming from fairly specific places or is it really a broad window of, of nations and, and languages? We get pretty diverse groups of folks. Um, I would say right now, some of the largest numbers of refugees coming into the United States broadly, but especially in Iowa, are coming from Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, 
But, you know, there are also people coming from Burma or Myanmar, um, people coming from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we've seen increasing numbers of people coming from um, Central and South America in the past you know, year or so. Um, our office has actually seen a few people coming in from El Salvador, which has been, a, a, you know, certainly unfortunate, but also a fun connection for me, mm -hmm. an opportunity to, to connect back to those El Salvador trips. Um, but it truly is a, a very diverse group of people coming in um, from many different places. There's Ukrainians um, coming into the community. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty broad scope. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, tell me about, so just moving is, is somewhat traumatic. They are leaving circumstances that I would imagine are highly traumatic and then, uh, kind of being awash in a new culture in place without a lot of resources must be, uh, exhausting and traumatic, uh, can you tell us tell us about how you walk alongside people and and how do you help them or how do they find their footing again? I mean, it, it's hard for me to almost really comprehend. It is. It is. I think about the times that, you know, I moved from Brookfield to Iowa for college. And I remember I called my sister the first week I was at college and said, I feel like I'm on a deserted island and I have no one and I don't know anyone. And <laughs> what do I do? Um, yeah. And that was a place where like, I looked like everyone around me and I could, I could freely converse with people around me. Um, you know, I, I feel like when we, when we go to El Salvador, when, when I studied in Tanzania, there's little hints of, of what it feels like to be in a place where it's where everything's new. There's so much newness around you and you can't readily communicate with people. Um, and while that was certainly stressful, there's an end date to it. Um, whereas the immigrants that are coming to the United States don't, they're coming for to, to rebuild their lives. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of the things that we do at my office are, are helping people learn how to navigate the community, helping people get enrolled into English classes and get access to the supports and services that that will get them stabilized. Um, interestingly enough, one of the conversations we've been having very recently in my office is, is the importance of connecting people to faith communities, knowing that faith is, is such a strong source of hope and resilience for people um that that it's crucial that once people get established and and get settled into a new community that we give them the opportunity to connect with a faith community that that's meaningful to them and that that can help them can help wrap their arms around them as they start to kind of navigate and process everything that they've been through yeah and just out you know i'm just curious do do faith communities in your area welcome the opportunity to be involved with that at least some of them i'm hoping yeah i think you know in the midwest we we get a bad rap sometimes right that that we're we're fairly fairly monotone communities um where we look a lot alike but but i think the 
the compassion that comes through faith and, and care for one of for our neighbors um, becomes a big thing. And, and we've been able to connect with, you know, a number of different faith communities and, and in Des Moines in Iowa, there's a lot of faith communities and churches that open their doors to, you know, a Swahili speaking congregation on Sunday nights or um, that, that pair up with, with uh, different ethnic or cultural communities to have uh, worship times in different languages. Oh. And so we work with a lot of those and a lot of the community leaders um, from different refugee and immigrant communities to help connect them with um, with our clients so that they can they can provide some of that additional support and and even just a sense of feeling at home. Yep. Good to hear. And and I, I liked how you mentioned the example of like you don't necessarily have to do the service for uh, a community, just make your building available for it. Um, I mean, which in a sense is kind of your job. It's not to make everything happen, but it's to, you know, uh, provide the pathway to allowing people to, uh, you know, find their own station and place in, in life and in a community. Um, exactly. We've sure found that in El Salvador that, you know, they don't need us to like do a lot of stuff. Um, but constant support means you're not forgotten and you have people who are mm -hmm. praying for you around the world. And uh, every once in a while, we have a resource that they don't have access to that we can help with. But, you know, they have the resources to easily, you know, figure it out <laughs> on their own. Uh, but com company's nice, you know. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. Um, so here, well, I'll, I'll ask this next one. So just tell me about, I would think one of the big obstacles to all of this is all of the languages you must be dealing with as an organization. Um, how do you do that? How do you find people who speak, uh, the language of the people who are coming and well, let, let's just go with that. And, and for example, do you, <laughs> have you learned multiple languages or, is that not really what you need to do? I I love to learn language. Um, so I studied Spanish in in high school and and throughout school. Um, and then when I was in Tanzania, I studied Swahili. Um, I mean, in when I was in college, I could speak and understand enough Swahili to follow a church service. And church services in Tanzania, you know, took the better part of a day. So that felt like a real win. Yep. <laughs> um, that is. But then I came back to, <laughs> but then I came back to the US and and didn't really have an opportunity to use it as much. Um I when I was in grad school I studied Arabic. Um uh and so so I dabble, I like to say in a lot of different languages. Um my five year old though does speak Bosnian better than I do. So I, I do have to, as much I, as I try to speak Bosnian with my in-laws and, and with my husband's um, cultural community, I, yeah. I'm not very good at it. Um, but I think a big part of, of the work that I do, part of it is just as simple as like knowing how to say hi to someone or knowing how to ask them how their day is. And, you know, you were talking about community and, and having people around you. 
it means so much to the people that I work with when someone can just say, hi, how are you in their language? Even if I butcher the pronunciation, even if I, you know, put emphasis on the wrong syllables, whatever it is, the fact that, that I'm trying and that I care enough to learn how to say hi, um, you can just tell on their faces that it means a lot. Um, and as far as daily communication, I am really, really fortunate to work with a lot of amazing people. Um, in our office, we've got 18 staff. And within those 18 staff, there's about 25 different languages that are spoken fluently. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I walk down the hall at work and hear someone from Afghanistan speaking in Hindi with someone who is from Bhutan. Um, and it's, it's fantastic to, to have that because the, you know, the people who speak those languages are often people who came as immigrants themselves, um, through one path or another. And, and they've kind of settled in the United States, you know, there's always a sense of straddling two places. Um, you have your home where you're from and the home where you live now. Um, but they, they they end up acting as as sort of mentors for the people that they work with and the the clients that they're serving um and they're able to say you know i've been in your shoes and and one time at one point i was a new person here too and and these are the things that were hard for me and and the experiences you're having right now aren't uncommon um and and here are some ways that i helped that, that helped me get through them. Yeah. Um, and so there's even that built in support and camaraderie, despite, you know, it could be someone from Afghanistan talking to someone from Congo about like, I know what you're going through. And even though we're from different places, our experience, we have this shared experience and, and here's, here's how we can work through it together. Yeah. Boy, I would just think that would be, if I was in the incoming shoes, I would, I would be so encouraged to meet somebody who would at least kind of walk that same path a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, most of the people that you work with. I would, uh, how have they entered the country and, you know, what's their immigration status in, you know, the United States. And I'm guessing there's maybe yeah. one answer to that, but what are some of the answers to that? <laughs> Yeah, I think this is where we we hear a lot, right? U.S. immigration yes, system is do. so complex, <laughs> and and it is. Um, and there's a there's a lot of complexities to it and a lot of nuance. Um, you know, certainly when I was very early in this work, my work was very focused on working with refugees who are people who have been forced to flee their homes because of very clear violence and persecution. Um, they flee their home country into another country and then um, go through some screening and processing while they wait abroad. And then they come to the U.S. after their screening um, and processing is completed and they come with refugee status. And then eventually they become legal permanent residents and then eventually they become citizens. Um, but but as I've kind of moved up in this work, I've also been able to work with people who come under different circumstances. And so, you know, the Afghans that came a few years ago came under humanitarian parole, which is an immigration status that's given basically to to people or groups of people who 
need to get into the United States quickly because of kind of emergency humanitarian concerns. Um, and it's a temporary status. It's, it's a status that people get. They're given it for two years. Um, and after those two years, they um, need to find another way to stay in the United States, whether that's applying for asylum or um, potentially even going back home. So there's a lot of different things with that. Um, a lot of Central Americans are in the United States with temporary protected status, which means that they, the U.S. government basically recognizes that it's not safe for them to go back home, but they're also not given a pathway to citizenship or to staying permanently in the United States. Um, I've worked with people who are seeking asylum, um, as well as people who come on the diversity lottery visa, which means that they quite literally won the lottery to, to get a visa to come yeah. to the United States. Um, families that have been separated and that have applied for families to join them, um, but also families that have been separated and are waiting for family members to come join them. And that's just the, and that all of that is just kind of the, so to speak, humanitarian side of the immigration system not even counting people who come for work or people who come for school. Um, and so there's just a lot and a lot of moving pieces always with immigration and statuses as well. Right, right, yeah. So um, if I'm reading between the lines, uh, I mean, part of what you're saying is that most of the immigrants who are in this country are, are not a surprise. I mean, they've come through a system and um, are generally here uh, with some sort of uh, permission from uh, our, our own government. Is that fairly accurate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, by and large, most people come to the United States with, with legal authorization. They've been screened, they've gone through extensive application processes and, and many times have waited for many, many years to come to be to be granted the ability to come to the United States. I just think that's really important because I, I think there's a tendency to fixate on immigration as uh, solely a southern border, Central American, mm -hmm. South American thing. But people are coming here for really important uh, reasons from all around the world. Um, and like you say, come through a really rigorous process, which if I'm also going in the right direction, at least from the little I hear from, not the little, I mean, I, if I wanted to hear more, I would, <laughs> but uh, from what I know from Lutheran um, uh, uh, Immigration and Refugee Services, like the number of people uh, who were permitted into the country during COVID dropped dramatically, which really um, was hard on the organizations that work with refugees and immigrants is mm -hmm. that kind of accurate and that hasn't really come back in other words now as more people are being permitted into the country some of the infrastructure for supporting them like what you do uh, hasn't returned therefore i think making your job harder is that somewhat accurate or what what's the lay of the land on all of that yeah, I mean, that is, that's a really great summary. Um, the past, oh gosh, almost 10 years now have been really tumultuous in, in working with refugees and immigrants. We've seen increasing amounts of kind of politicization 
of, of yeah, immigration. Yeah. We know what um, you mean. I know. I'm like, well, tongue tied. It's a Friday. Um, but yeah, it's, and then the COVID pandemic certainly impacted very, very drastically the numbers of people. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's important to note is that it impacted the amount of people available to screen and to do the screening processes for refugees and immigrants. It impacted how many people could be in the office to do those kinds of things for U.S. immigration systems, um, which impacted the number of visas and and people that were available to, to come to the U.S. Um, a lot of the work that we do as, as resettlement agencies and as immigrant serving organizations is, is funded based on how many people we serve. So um, that meant big yeah. budget cuts for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're a passionate bunch and we're a resilient bunch. And so, so we, we, many of us stood, stood the test of time, um, but there were some organizations that couldn't and local offices that couldn't um, maintain despite budget cuts. And so, um, yeah, it, it's been tough. And as we've been trying to rebuild um, the infrastructure that that we can provide as far as services once people get here, it's meant a heavier workload for the people that are here. Um, and it's meant um, kind of a higher demand for services despite smaller staffing levels. Um, it always takes a while to, to rebuild the knowledge and supports that are available once they've been cut. Yes, oh man, is that true? And I, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people in the United States are you know, proud of a long heritage of immigration and uh, that continues today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think so often people are not tracking that, you know, every one of those people who comes in faces a myriad of challenges and, and by underinvesting in, you know, organizations like yours and people like you, uh, we under invest in all of us, you know, because that really mm. is part of the dynam- dy- dynamic, well, I'm, I'm having a dynamic nature. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with my English as well, but the dynamic nature of a country that at its best, I think, is welcoming and uh, profoundly diverse and creative and mm-hmm. does all of that. How do you, when people, do you encounter people who hear what you do and 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 dismiss it as, you know, you're just working with illegals or mm-hmm. you're hurting our country by letting, uh, air quotes, these people in? Does that happen to you? And when it does, how do you respond to something like that? <laughs> you know, I was I was actually just having this conversation with my dad as well. Mm. Um, uh, I think with how much, you know, refugee resettlement especially used to be very much a bipartisan issue. Um, but But things have, you know, for a number of reasons, things have become a little bit more challenging. Um, And I, I do find myself when, you know, the simple, hi, how are you? I'm meeting someone new. What do you do for a living? Question comes up. Um, I I find myself, (laughs) I often find myself kind of assessing the person in front of me. Are, are they someone who's going to be friendly? Who's, who's going to be kind? 
Um, I, I have had people flat out tell me that, that the work that I do is, is not right. That the work that I do is, is somehow, um, hurting American citizens. Uh, one of the offices that I used to work at got voicemails left that, that we were ruining American society and that we were posing risks by the people we were letting in the country and the people we were serving, we were posing risks to the community at large. Um, and, and at the same times as that was happening, I saw the faces of the people that came into the country. Um, and I saw the faces of people who, who were impacted by policy changes um, and the hurt that these things caused. Um, and for me, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's a point of, it's an opportunity to provide education. Um, and there are days where I certainly will stand up and provide that point of education. Um, I've, I've been told that Muslims are coming into this country to kill us all. And there have been days where I've said that is certainly not the case because I'm married to a Muslim and I am still alive. So I can attest to that not Ooh, being a, a true nice statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are days where, you know, it just wears on me too. And I don't have the energy to fight it. And I just say, I work in social services um, mm -hmm. because it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so hard to convey that, well, no, actually, most of the people I work with, uh, you know, are here with permission of our government. And um, mm -hmm. we're, we're blessed to have them added to who we are as a people. Um, so Kind of two things in closing. I'll, I'll I'll pose them both, and you can kind of take them in in whatever order you want. Um, when you think about uh, what you do on a daily basis, and all the people you work with, and then so the very personal kind of micro picture, and then compare that to the macro political worldwide issue. Um, what's what's one thing about this enormous? but also very personal system that you'd love to see change. So what's one thing that would be a worthwhile uh, change kind of at the ground level of things. Um, and then where, where you do really hard work and really important work, where do you draw some hope uh, from what you do and who you are? Yeah. You know, I think truly, I think the one thing that I'd like to see change is is kind of a shift back, so to speak, to the recognition that that people coming here to this country are often doing so under circumstances that they would not choose. Um, you know, there's I've heard many people say, like, your home is like your mother and no one wants to leave their mother. Yeah. yeah. People, you know, I think. I think back to one of those very early trips to El Salvador where we, um, I, I can't remember his name, but one of the young men from, from San Salvador, from Cordero, Cordero de Dios yeah. had just left and, and he had tried to get into the United States because things weren't safe. Um, and, and the heart, I remember seeing the heartbreak on his family's face and, his church members' faces. And it's, you know, it's not a choice that people make lightly. People aren't coming here 
um, kind of frivolously <laughs> to 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 try something new or to, to take advantage of um, to take advantage of the community. They're coming here because they have to, um, and they're coming whether it's because they have to for their safety or because they have to for better opportunity for themselves and their family. And and I think the recognition that it's a decision that all of us would make if we were put in that position is is one that I would like to see shifted um, in 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 certain circles. Um, I just it's not I mean, a all those countries you mentioned. I mean, are places of war, violence. I mean. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm I'm just so seconding what you say in that I don't know how many times we've heard in El Salvador that, you know, uh, people desperately don't want to leave and are looking for reasons to stay. But um, when, exactly when you drive a bus and you're either going to get killed or uh, have your family members endangered, you're options narrow pretty quickly so exactly um, um how about hope i, I interrupted you um, <laughs> no with that as as kind of your dream of what could change uh what what keeps you doing it right now you know i think the thing that keeps me doing it is the the little moments or the things that seem like little moments it's it's kids seeing snow for the first time, kids mm -hmm. from Congo coming to the US and like playing in snow for the first time and yeah. getting these huge smiles. It's it's someone learning, you know, it's a woman learning how to write her name in any language for the first time. Um, it's people having access to the opportunities and experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and it's that connection. It's it's seeing the the caseworker from Bhutan talk to a client from Congo about about their experiences and about what is life like back home. Um, and it's it's seeing my team work together and and play cricket together at a staff outing where maybe only one person ever knew how to play cricket, but they all jump in and, and they get together. Um, and and really at a macro level, it's that beauty of diversity and how the people that are coming to this country because they have to, are adding to the the rich fabric of our communities. Beautifully stated, and it's from for me to just imagine everything you just described, um, from being able to uh, sign your name for the first time to playing in a little bit of snow and and beautiful Iowa in the winter. Uh, Thera, <laughs> thanks for being a part of this. It's so good to reconnect with you. Uh, we as a congregation are really proud of what you do and uh, glad that you've been a part of our community uh, along the way. And so for anyone who's listening, whenever you happen to be listening to this, thanks for being a part of Belief Beat. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Sarah Zanich, um, who's the Deputy Director of Programs at the International Rescue Committee uh, in, oh, I don't even, what specifically, what city are you in in Iowa? Currently Des Moines, but coming Mo soon to Iowa City as well. Ah, okay. Okay, but uh, the larger Des Moines area. And uh, someone who grew up in the Cross Life part of Unity and is nice enough to hang out with us a little bit for Belief Beat. So thanks to all of you for listening. And once again, thanks to Sarah for being a part of it. Bye for now.